Hey, this is Shri. And this is Will. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology, its implications for the future, and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. Great. So, All right, Shri, how's it going this week? Pretty good. Pretty good. I am drinking a, a local Chicago brew. I'm visiting Chicago. Uh, it's an Oktoberfest lager, it says. I am drinking leftover cold coffee today and some guava <laughs> juice. Last time I got really itchy drinking wine. It never happened before, so I'm going to stay away for a little bit. So so that that's me, I guess. That's an interesting combination. Mm, <laughs> terrible, and water to wash it all down. So, Shri, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about the metaverse, uh, which is a concept that has a storied history in sci-fi and is now coming back into the vogue with big tech CEOs bringing it up in their keynote uh, speeches these days. So we're going to sort of unpack what the metaverse is and uh, what kind of technologies are going to power it and uh, think about what kind of future uh, it, it holds for us. Mm, yeah, I remember s some smatterings of mentions of metaverse here and there, but I didn't really look into it until recently. And it just sounds like one of those catchy hype phrases, but may maybe as a result of the discussion, we'll, we'll find out more about it. So what is the metaverse? Yeah, so like I mentioned, it's this very loaded phrase. I think it means something different to any given person that you ask, but the history behind it is that it, it was first used in this uh, sci-fi novel by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash, which is a basically a classic at this point to describe uh, a virtual world in which people drop into, and it's a, a rich virtual world that has its own corporations, its own sort of identity. You can take on a different identity than the one that you have in your physical existence. It's a very good uh, novel, but it introduced this whole concept. And now I think it's coming back into the common parlance. We're hearing everybody from Satya Nadella of Microsoft to, to Zuck mentioning it. And they all have <laughs> a different... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> It's like you and but yeah. each other pretty well. Anyway, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're best buddies. Right, right, but please go on. Well, yeah, so every corporation these days is, is mentioning it in, in different ways. Everybody who uses it uses it in a different way. It encompasses a few different ideas. There's definitely an aspect of virtual or augmented reality. So it's this idea that a metaverse is a world of its own, which, which is entirely virtual. And it's either a kind of substitute or is a extension of the physical world. And so that's uh, one big component. But I think there are a few people now, especially in the venture capital industry, who are trying to parse out specifically what are the properties that a metaverse would have compared to simply virtual reality. 
which is is one technology which exists and is increasingly popular. But in in what sense does virtual reality differ from the metaverse? And so, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So like one one interesting analysis is by this this uh, VC called Matthew Ball, who unpacks it this way. And which comes is up the, in the, all the Google searches, apparently. Right? Yeah, I mean, he's he's made like a name of like writing this huge uh, document about what is the metaverse, and it's, yeah, it's no, just I one definition. Props. Yeah, yeah, I, I give him props because, like, Mark Andreessen just had a thing that says "let's build," but he doesn't tell you what. And this guy wrote out a whole manifesto for for this, so it's props to like props to Matthew Ball. Yeah, for sure. He wrote a thirty thousand. A word essay manifesto like you mentioned but the way he unpacks it is that the metaverse is an expansive network of persistent real-time rendered 3d worlds that support the continuity of identity objects history payments etc uh, etc et that can be experienced synchronously by effectively an unlimited number of users and so there are a few key words that call out to me, but it's this idea that the world is persistent, that is, it's real time, it's multiplayer, but also the idea that the objects within this world have a persistent state. So they have their sense of identity and they have a, a, a you know, history, they're trackable, it's auditable. And then, you know, from that, you can build things like payments, you can build ownership systems, you can build, you know, governance structures, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's kind of different from just like a 3D game in that the things within this world kind of have the properties that real world objects have. Yeah. When I was reading through it, what struck me about his definition was that we have parts of these that kind of look like bits and pieces of the what he would describe as the metaverse, but it's not quite all there yet. It's kind of like, oh, I can point to this example of this company doing this product. That's, that seems like it's almost there, but, but it's not quite because it's missing this, this piece. And, and we can talk about that um, later, but like, you know, we have rendered real-time worlds, but they're not persistent, right? And like, we, we might have real-time rendered worlds that have payments, but, you know, they most of them don't have like a real world effect on the economy. It doesn't raise like the GDP of the countries that, that participate, right? Like we're starting to yeah. see some of them that, that does make a difference where people can actually do work within the game to earn real world money. But once again, like there's, there's like disparate things, but I think overall what yeah. he's, and it sounds to me like he's trying to describe an internet to people that have never used the internet before because I was it yeah. reminded me of interviews with Ted Nelson the the guy that did Xanadu like he's uh, really kind of like a front runner and a visionary for um, hypertext and when you mm -hmm. listen to interviews with him by journalists he's just so exasperated sometimes like what are you guys asking like like <laughs> the the questions that they have just don't make sense and there's not kind of that like suspension of disbelief to kind of see what what Ted Nelson has already seen and so I, in the same way I, I get the sense that like whether the metaverse 
is actually a thing or not, or whether it'll turn out the way we envision or not. I get the sense that Matthew Ball had a, had to put a lot of words in to try to describe what it's not, to kind of carve yeah. out the piece that so that we, we can kind of uh, get a sense of what he's trying to convey. And the, the main part there, if, if I were to summarize that, that blurb that you had about the persistent real time meta is that there's we have our real offline world with our online world and right now there's a little most of it it goes one way but yeah. if they're able to be mashed up together where both are persistent the, the online world was persistent in the same way that the off world is and that there's a duality between how the information flows between one and the other, where like you do something digitally and it affects the real world, right? And more yeah. than just calling a cab or, or ordering groceries, right? Yeah. Then, then that's kind of where, where, where I think he's going. And I, I, we can talk about some of the things that that might be part of that to to be more specific, but we we can get to that later. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I think one interesting thing as I try to distinguish this from a, a World of Warcraft or Second Life or any of these other, you know, MMORPGs that have an open world system and their own economy and things like that is the difference actually is kind of alluded to in the novel Snow Crash. So in, in the novel Snow Crash, the the protagonist uh, does things in the metaverse that have serious enough consequences that he is targeted in the physical world to prevent him from performing those actions in the metaverse. And obviously, so that's that's a sort of sci-fi take on it. But like you mentioned, this this duality where the consequences of your actions in the virtual world actually could feed back into the physical world. I think we, right now we don't necessarily have that. Like if you play a game, yeah. you can log off and it's like totally fine, right? Like it doesn't, doesn't matter what's happening in Second Life for the most part. But I think as things are getting tied together using the the phrases that that uber actually uses that there's this like world of bits and the world of atoms and i think you kind of see a little bit of a mashup like you you mentioned uber so for the first time in like the past decade or so you can kind of control the physical world yeah. using you know apps and things so we're seeing a little bit of that mashup but i think this is an expansion where what if you take it all the way where the world of bits has actual meaningful consequences to the world of atoms and vice versa to the point where these two things are, are fused uh, together almost. Right. And to the end user, it may not matter which is actually real or which is actually not real or digital. But the, the, the point is that there's a, a perception. Like as long as it, to me, is perceived as being real, then it's, it's by all intents and purposes real right so yeah yeah exactly yeah so i'm curious why do you think this phrase is coming up now this is a decades old 
you know, word, but why do you think it's coming up now? Yeah. Well, so I want to say part of it is, is tech companies are pretty paranoid nowadays because they know that things can change quickly. Like yeah. unlike the sleepy incumbents of the past, like when Ted Nelson was doing the interview in 1979, they kept talking about IBM, right? Because at that point, IBM was the dominant tech giant. Nowadays, nobody ever thinks about or worries about IBM, right? And so I think a lot of the tech giants of today are always worried about disruption. And so as part of that, they're, because they were disruptors themselves, right? Through the opportunity that was the internet. And they're looking for, okay, like if I'm going to survive yet another decade, what is the next platform? And so I, I think that that's part of the reason why. That's one. I think two, definitely the sci-fi uh, and metaverse captures people's imaginations, like without stories, like it's not motivating for people to go do hard things, right? You have to sell people to, what was it, long for the endless expanse of the sea uh, yeah. to get people to build the ship, that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. so I think that that's partially that, like in, in terms of, I guess, the vision and motivation. But I, I think the last aspect I would point to is that the multiple pieces that are required to make this uh, like a, a reality, like a minimally, the minimal bar is just starting to get there. I mean, hardware has been increasing really fast, but I think it's starting to get to a point where we can make it both fast, power efficient and small so that we can like fit it on our glasses or as one, one example of like how AR might work out. So like the combination of the hardware, the compute with the deep learning to track people's facial features mm -hmm. or like puppeteering, like avatars, for example, you know, we, we have faster and faster, like wireless networks, you know, 4G, LTE, 5G. Yeah. And then I think another important thing is that games are no longer video games are no longer seen as just for children like mm -hmm. you have a whole generation of people that know what wasd is you don't really have to explain it to them right and so so there's like behavioral parts there and then yeah like there there are other aspects uh cryptocurrencies i think is is probably one piece and then there's some like synchronization and streaming technologies that that are all seem to be coming together and pointed in the same place so mm -hmm. that's a long way of me saying that there's a narrative and a story that points people in that direction and then kind of our infrastructure ecosystem hardware and software are finally like minimally good enough to kind of make that thing happen yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I would draw the analogy to the mobile platform that emerged in the 2000s. And that's sort of a confluence of a few different factors. One is that the mobile web got fast enough. So I think with 
3G was probably the first time where a mobile data was actually usable for a wide variety of applications rather than just loading text web pages. The combination of that with a touchscreen, multi-touch devices pioneered by the iPhone, as well as for the first time, I think marketplaces, two-sided marketplaces where payments were flowing were really you know, coming into fruition. All of those led to this huge wave of apps like Uber, Airbnb, of course, like all of the mobile apps, the, the whole app store ecosystem. And so it's obvious looking in retrospect that, okay, I can connect the dots. Like all of these technologies happen to mature at the right time in such a way that you can tie them together into this holistic experience, which we call, you know, mobile computing and mobile first computing. Yeah. What's interesting about this metaverse is, is I think people are now trying to do it in a, in a forward looking direction rather than just like looking back and saying, oh yeah, okay, all these dots obviously connected in this way. I think the tech companies, like you mentioned, are, are hungry for this like next, what's the next platform? Because we've been in this mobile era for so long now, right? Like almost going on 15 years. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's been, I, I think it's been longer time that has elapsed between now and the first iPhone than the iPhone and Windows 95, I believe. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right, right? Like uh, it's been, yeah, that was 12 years. Yeah, we're just over 12 years now. Yeah. And yeah, we've, yeah, I think we've been in this kind of, you know, I, the, the phrase that I've heard is, like the long now, like the, the, we're, we're in this time where it, it feels like we're kind of frozen in time in this kind of stasis, at least in terms of in, what's in terms the next of platform. Or, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, like obviously tech has been improving and, and its impact on the world is, is at an all time high and it's gonna to continue to grow. Yeah. But in terms of like, what's the next step change? that's gonna take us to a new paradigm of, of computing and interacting with, with, with tech. I think people are, are waiting for, for that and looking to cash in on that. And so I think people are trying to, rather than just looking back and organically sort of connecting the dots and, and letting this thing emerge, I think people are now trying to connect a few different things that are happening. Like for example, you mentioned 5G cryptocurrencies and, and, and blockchain for, you know, persistent ownership and, and, and transactions, generative models to generate images and, and media, as well as, you know, the ubiquity of, of sensors for, for AR or face tracking or uh, 3D. 3D scanning, 3D capture. I think all of those things are, are ready and I think people are trying to tie them together under this banner of the, of the metaverse. So yeah, that's that's what I think is happening. Yeah, and when, when I read about this, like looking forward, it's hard to kind of peer into the 
future because I, I know for sure that we're wrong in, in some way or another because, well, so if uh, the only thing that we have to guide us is to look back at historic precedents and then use that as an analogy to like what we might expect. Yeah. And then and then I guess there are some other things where you can try to reason from first principles. But at, at, at least to the very start, like what it reminded me of was in the early 2000s, there were some people that were really excited about smartphones because even before the iPhone came out, there were like the Blackberries and the Trios, yeah. I think. Who, who made those? Mm -hmm. Nokia? Yeah, yeah, like the, like yeah. the Palm handheld. Yeah, stuff. Palm yeah. Trios, right. Yeah. And, and there was this one guy who was doing like analysis of mobile computing. And there was a couple things that I read at the time that I thought was pretty spot on in 2004 or 2005 or something like that where you know he's been using it and he's like oh this thing is really interesting because like a phone isn't just a small laptop like it's an extension of yourself it's always on you and so as mm -hmm. a result it becomes a, like personal computers aren't nearly as personal as like a phone right and so yeah. like all your stuff effectively is there and it's kind of he didn't use the phrase second brain, but it's it's effectively kind of that that sentiment, one. And then I remember where people got it wrong was they were really excited about location services for mm. phones. And so like the GPS tracking, because before cell phones, the only thing that used GPS was the driving direction, like Garmin's, yeah. Yeah. With the driving directions. And with the location services like definitely like marketers and advertisers like this is gonna be awesome because when somebody walks by a starbucks we're gonna shoot them in advertising <laughs> based on their location and then they're gonna come in right that that was right. the thinking at the time and that was why i was really excited but it turns out that it's actually backwards like what people will do is use the gps on their phones to check in as to where they are at and then, and then that's how you kind of get get that like the consumer data that you can act on. You may not advertise them directly, but like companies like Foursquare with Swarm, they are most. I think their business is mostly as like a data provider to other like companies as to like how people move in physical space and that that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. Uh people definitely also didn't expect that phones are were going to become such general purpose computing devices. I think that there was, you know, even even Blackberries and and you know the Palm devices, they were they were kind of useful. The, they were useful as as mobile computers, but they were sort of accessories to the, you know, serious computers, like business computers. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was going to say like, do you remember a time when people had such low expectations of mobile computers? But I, I think like you're talking about pre iPhone with the yes. Blackberries, like what did people do with it? Mostly like send emails. I mean, the right. Blackberries hold like double down is like, you know what? For mobile computers, people just want to send email. That's the killer app. That's what we're sticking with, right? Yeah. So, right. 
so so yeah 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 I, I i remember that time now now that you mention it yeah and i think when you know, to draw an analogy i think we're we're kind of similar i think like us two sitting here now are definitely going to get it wrong because mm. you know if we had this podcast going back in like you know 2005 or whatever and we were talking about mobile computing i don't think we would have predicted that we predicted the iphone and the, and the whole slew of of industries that it would it would create but i think there were at that time some inklings that you could see like for example going back to this blackberry idea there were people who were glued to their blackberry like it was it was glued to the palm of their hand and people would make jokes about it all the time and, yeah. and things like that so there there was this early adopter wave where you could maybe extrapolate from that and and say well for this set of users mobile computing is in fact their primary source of computing millions and millions of dollars of business are 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 being conducted using these mobile devices and so maybe you could at that time look at them and if you're a particularly insightful person imagine oh like these people are just at the leading edge of what's going to happen eventually which is that everybody's now going to have devices like this and they're going to conduct all types of business no matter what their role is not just executives and so if you're very unusually insightful person you might have been able to sort of look back look at that time and and project out and i wonder if there's a class of people right now who are like those early executives glued to their their palm pilots or their or their blackberries yeah, or metaverse yeah. i would have to say it's the people that are already kind of using these proto metaverses like nothing beats being on the ground to kind of have those new experience like i i always think that like whatever young people and technologists and rap artists are doing today is what most everybody will be doing in like 10 to 15 years but yeah yeah but but i, I mean case the definitely true that i think whatever we talk about the the what what we should what we should focus on is the behavior changes the concepts that are behind because definitely the specific implementations or like what we talk about will probably sound pretty outdated in the same way that yeah. our favorite precinct guy, Vannevar Bush, talked about the Memex, but he talked about it with like microfiche, right? Yeah. Implementing it as a microfiche where we're like, that, that's completely ridiculous. So so kind of going, going towards uh, that then, what do you think it lets us do that's new? Or like, what, what sort of new things can we build given the groundswell of technologies and the vision of going towards a metaverse where we can kind of fuse the online and offline in a way where they, the, the lines between them are blurred. Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting to me is the future of work and, and how work gets done. And so right now we're kind of splitting from this this idea of, of you know physical work and physical office buildings 
thanks to the pandemic and all of that. And, and people are kind of coming around to this idea of remote work and stuff like that. But it's still physically based in that these are companies that are first and foremost registered in some, some state or some nation. And uh, they have offices, but you can sort of work remotely. And I'm really interested in organizations that are purely virtual. So, so you can think of open source projects as a, that kind of organization where they're sort of this coalition that, that, that isn't really registered or associated strongly with one physical location. They have people worldwide who are collaborating using you know, tools like version control and, and whatnot. And so what if you could take that open source model and using the metaverse, extend it to things that are not purely software-based. So what if you could have virtual workspaces, you could have organizations that have assets that are not necessarily tied or they have a, a mix of assets that are virtual, maybe cryptocurrencies, maybe other types of assets as well, as well as physical. And so now you extend this open source working model to other types of industries. So maybe you can run a fashion company or a music studio or, or whatnot. And so what kind of tools would you need in order to support that type of globally distributed, almost you know, virtual first workspace? So what would a virtual first fashion house look like? So yeah, I think a virtual first fashion house, I, I'm going to sort of just like BS my way through this here because I've never worked in the fashion house. Yeah, yeah neither have I. <laughs> so, so the BS filter is really low. Right, right. <laughs> okay, cool. So I mean, I think um, I imagine in, in, in a fashion house, you would have uh, designers, you would have people who were collaborating on sketches, but obviously those would also have to turn out into physical objects. Right? And so I think a, a lot of industries, people have to collaborate by looking at some shared reality at the end of the day. Like you can't share a screen and be able to effectively work. You have to show some type of prototype. You have to sort of look at something together and, and discuss and collaborate on that. And so I think you could create a virtual fashion house, a 3D rendered model where you can all take a look maybe in, in virtual reality. Maybe you can have a collaboration space where you can riff on different ideas. And in fact, it would be better than a physical fashion house because you could iterate a lot faster by quickly changing the color of some object which is not something that you could necessarily do in the physical world, but you might be able to do that even more effectively in this virtual world. So you could have a showroom and then you're able to sort of quickly tweak and maybe even use some generative AI to uh, take a design and, and push it in a particular direction and see if you like that or not, and then iterate quickly. So that's, that's one aspect in terms of the day-to-day -day work. Yeah, so I, I guess to riff on that, I, I imagine that for industries in which having like a 3D model, it, 
really helps you understand the thing that you're working with. Like, I guess the typical things that come to mind are like 3D assets for movies or uh, architecture, like uh, car design or, or like clothing design, like in fashion, like having uh, col- collaboration, as far as I understand for today's workflow mainly consists of sharing files on a drive and there are some like specialized tools where you can lock a file that sort of thing and and see the diff like they they don't have tools like git or version control the same way that the the programmers do and they definitely aren't really in the same room the best they can they can do is share a screen but i think with having the dress or the model in front of you in a presence, I think there's a number of things that you can do to change besides just the color. For example, you might change the environment that the dress finds itself in or even the architecture, right? So when I thought about how that might change the retail shopping experience, like I hate shopping for clothes because I got to take my clothes off and put it back on again. I, I, and so those things where they have the mirrors that superimpose the clothes on you, like I'm like, that's great. But going one step further, if we're thinking about the metaverse, you could conceivably change the entire environment around you and see how the clothes look on you. And so not only as you for the retail shopper to, to be able to like see and explore that to help you with your buying decision, but for the designers as well, right? And so mm-hmm. when you're in a room, quote unquote room, where you're with the other designers and you can change the environment that you're in to see what it looks like, that that would probably help you get 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 a feel for what the end user might do. Because a lot of times in design, what you're trying to do is simulate in your brain like empathy for the end user to feel like what will they feel when they see this if it's like this right and so this yeah. kind of helps you get part of the way there the computer will help you get part of the way there so that you don't have to play computer in your mind to kind of simulate this thing another one is it in in such a room you can also change the lighting so a lot of times especially in architecture you want to see what is the feel of the room as the sun goes through its arc or it, throughout the day and at different seasons, right? Like as it has a different mm-hmm. trajectory. And so right now there are tools like that where you can see it and you in the 3D model on the screen, but it doesn't feel quite the same as if you're actually there, right? Like for, yeah. the, for those of you that have tried virtual reality, like one of the strongest things is the sense of presence. Like even though you know, like the stuff that you're looking at is is not real, it's just cartoonishly fake, but like you feel like you're in that space, right? And so I, I think these sort of metaverse environments will help people in industries that need kind of an extra layer of information to be able to make better decisions about their designs. Uh, so kind of going along mm-hmm. with the, the fashion houses where you can change not just the color, but the time of day. Like I once bought a shirt that I thought was olive green at the store. And when I took it back home, it was like brown. I was just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, right. that, 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 that I, I would have benefited from something like that. Yeah, I think 
you're bringing up an interesting point as well on the consumer side because okay let's say that it's interesting for clothing designers to collaborate and look at some you know 3d model and tweak it you could have a fashion house that uh that just buys everybody a 3d headset and just otherwise operates entirely like a normal um company is that really the metaverse or is it a you know fashion house that owns 3d headsets i would say it's the latter but if you tie in other aspects of the the buying experience so if you think about how uh, a consumer would benefit and interact with this clothing like you mentioned you could have stores now that that allow you to project these these clothes right onto yourself using some kind of smart mirror or things like that. And, and I think you know, things like Snapchat filters make it pretty obvious these days that computer vision is powerful enough now to be able to accurately do body tracking, to be able to accurately overlay a pretty realistic looking images on top of, uh, of, yeah. of reality. And so now you can imagine that as a consumer, you also interact with this company differently because you could in fact try out designs that they didn't even manufacture yet. So they're, you know, they created a model yesterday and they're like, hey, let's A-B test this. And they push it out to the smart mirrors in their store or maybe even home try on using, yeah. you know, your, your phone or whatever. And you can see you, you can see what they're working on, and maybe you can even feed back to them and say, "Hey, this is a good design. If you make it, I'll buy it, or maybe I will crowdfund this. I'll help make this happen, make this design happen." And huh. so that's it operates really differently than right. you know how Gap or Banana Republic or whatever operates today. That's pretty interesting because I, I think one of the reasons why the internet was so disrupted because it upended some fundamental assumptions of like how like kind of the characteristics of a business right like now with the internet depending on product obviously but like the distribution costs were near zero and and uh, you effectively had infinite uh, shelf space and so people coined was it chris anderson coined the long tail because like mm -hmm. netflix wasn't like Blockbuster, which had limited shelf space. They effectively could hold as many titles as they want, even if only a few people watch it. It doesn't matter because like it's it's just on disc. And so these the the changing of these assumptions allowed people to pursue business models that struck at the weaknesses of more traditional models. And so bringing it back to the metaverse, one of the main questions I had was, how does this change the calculus of some fundamental business assumptions? And maybe for industries that we have no, know nothing about of how they produce it, right? But maybe um, you could have more crowdfunded designs, maybe not of like fashion because we already seen things like Threadless, right? Where they mm -hmm. crowdfund t-shirt designs, but maybe even homes. Like I was thinking homes, like where people can, do walkthroughs and they can kind of A-B test different designs before they decide this demographic in this area really like this kind of thing. And so it would it would be very profitable for us to build this kind of home instead or something that's a little bit more 
expensive. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm sure there's like other factors that figure into like exactly what sort of homes get built. But uh, I guess the point that I'm trying to hammer into on top of what you're saying is how does it change the calculus? And if it allows people to lower the risk of product by selling it before they have to make it, then that would definitely change a lot of things and help things iterate a lot faster. Yeah, if you have this fast iteration loop in terms of these cultural artifacts like fashion, music, gaming or, or, or visual art forms, and they're basically able to short circuit whatever physical distribution issues that they have and be able to collaborate entirely virtually and then be able to take those artifacts and then ship them out into the world, overlay them on, into the physical world. I think that really fast iteration is just going to keep accelerating and accelerating and accelerating until it starts to define culture. And anything slower than that is just going to be more obsolete, right? It's so anybody has no no hopes of catching up with anything. You're considered old by the time you're 25. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I, I mean, I, I think there's, I mean, like uh, one thing I've seen is like when, when adults try to talk to teens about memes that they've seen somewhere they're like oh we've already seen this for three months you're coming to us with it now right and so because <laughs> they're, they're already way ahead of the curve uh through tiktok and when when we see it on like i don't know reddit or something i don't know but but yeah. but then uh, I, i'm sure there's some hard caps to how fast that would accelerate i think it i can't it might depend on specific industries because some are definitely more fad and fashion driven and then others are hampered by constraints mm -hmm. such as is it useful because there, there's some things where the constraint is that hey is this useful like if it's not i don't care how fashionable it is it, it doesn't really matter and then there are other things where you know like it there's no there's no grounding other than what everybody else is doing. And so things like fashion, right? So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there are definitely caps. And I think we're, we're also, as we're talking about the physical manufacturer products, at, at the end of the day, at some point, you're going to have to interact with the physical world and actually you know, manufacture these things. And that's gonna happen in some place by some actual people or some actual machines. Well, but um, this is the metaverse at some point, but maybe maybe you could say that like there's, I, I could have envisioned that instead of wallpaper or painting, you get really tiny LED lights that you can plaster on the yeah. walls of your room, right? And so your product may end up just being digital objects to decorate your environment in. And mm. while you may not, for those things you may not physically hold it like that like it is in your environment did you see the 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 movie sets where you're effectively enclosed by a giant led screen yeah like yeah and, and the so, mandalorian or whatever uh, right. did that i think yeah yeah and so the the set is physical within the boundaries but then all the backgrounds 
and the environment and the lighting is is digital, but it's on those giant curved screen to make people feel like you're actually there and you're actually lit as if you're actually there. So people don't have to change the lighting post-processing in a really tedious manner. Yeah. And so you could conceivably have that sort of environment in your own home, like a, a consumer version of that. And so mm -hmm. you, so you, you could have walls that don't look like walls. They could look like the night sky or, yeah. or floating objects, or even like your favorite things uh, receding into the past, right? That, that sort of thing. Like every time, you have clutter in your house, you like ship it off into a storage unit service and then they'll scan it and then you can see it receding into the background on your wallpaper. And so you can browse and like bring it back sort of thing. So right. I can imagine there's, there's stuff like that. And so I, I guess all I'm saying is there's caveats, but definitely there are things, well, the, the, the reason why you made that point was, was just that there are some industries that that uh, float on its value, and then there are other things mm -hmm. that have hard constraints. And so, it's it's a matter of seeing like which ones will be fad driven to have that accelerate positive feedback in the acceleration, and then there's others. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say that all of them will have yeah. this hard constraint with manufacturing. Yeah, definitely. Another thing that came to mind is there are experiences that are economically valuable that are entirely virtual. You could imagine having something like a music festival or a amusement park or a haunted house or something, a virtual experience that is economically valuable and that people pay to, to participate in it. Yeah, and we, we have we have Disney already, right? <laughs> That's an ex yeah. a good example. Actually, as an aside, I was thinking that for the metaverse, Disney might be well set up to do this sort of stuff because they have the Imagineers at the amusement parks, which are effectively kind of an early prototype of what we're talking about with the metaverse. Mm -hmm. Because like a lot of their amusement rides were animatronics to begin with, but I went to Disney World, I think the last five years or so, and I was surprised that they do incorporate like digital aspects in addition to their animatronics uh, for for their experiences. And so mm -hmm. I, I yeah. didn't see that mentioned in Matthew Ball, but they might be the, the dark horse in, in all of this to, to provide something. Yeah, totally. And I, I think like uh, when you're running an amusement park or honestly, like any experience like uh, Disney does, there's a lot of creative work that goes into it. They they shift, you know, they they, uh, they move Earth, they reshape the geography of 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 where they are in order to, you know, build build rides. They you know, they invest a lot into things like animatronics and 3D projection and, and things like that. And you can imagine, what if they took all those, all those talents and instead they built virtual experience where you had those same Imagineers doing landscape architecture, doing animation, 
doing, you know, interior design and set design and, and all of those things in, you know, let's just say like a Roblox type environment or a Minecraft type environment. And people come and, and, and pay money to, to go through this ride, right? And so that's a very different kind of economic model too, because you have this, this company where people are going to work, where going to work means that they're going to, you know, log in to some, you know, VR headset, and they're going to, you know, survey the land, so to speak, and 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 move blocks around and and put models here and there and like construct this design, and then they're going to, you know, open it up to the world when it's ready, and people are going to come and and pay pay something, and they're going to go through this, and and so you basically have taken this, this very physically intensive labor intensive industry and shifted it to this entirely virtual process. And, and maybe through that, you could do some very interesting things. You could change the design every day, depending on how, how people, how much fun people had the previous day and say, okay, well, this didn't work. Like, let's put a, a, a new, you know, structure here, which you would never be able to do in the real world. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, I, I wonder, maybe, uh, given given the reason why I mentioned Disney as opposed to any other design firm that works completely in digital is that they have a mix of digital and the physical. And so if, well, one, one of the ways that I conceived of the metaverse was that you would be able to take the best parts of a digital experience, mash it with the best parts of an offline experience, which that that's what you get in Disney. And so mm -hmm. in, in the same way, in the last episode, we were talking about local for software in which the manifesto was proposing taking the best properties of web apps, the synchronization and collaboration with the best parts of desktop apps where, you know, you own your own data, keep your own files. Like, can we get the best parts of both? And so with the online and offline, I imagine that Disney would be able to pull something like that off, given that it seems to be in their wheelhouse. Yeah. And, and so, so I, I think that that's why I brought it up. So, so bringing it back to the question of what would you build? One of the things that came to mind was thinking tools and exploratory computation. One of the things that was interesting is the metaverse reminded me of dynamic land and dynamic land is a research project by brett victor who has written a lot about human computer interaction and influenced the industry in a variety of different ways the latest thing that he's working on is a room-sized computer called Dynamic Land. And it's not room-sized in the sense of the old IBM mainframes, but the fact that the entire computer is a room. And so the way that you program it is that you have these sheets of paper with colored dots on it so that the computer can recognize it and then you can move the pieces of paper around on the table. 
And when they're joined together, they compose into larger programs. And so in this way, you can build programs in front of other people. And the experience that people have at Dynamic Land is that they say it's surprisingly collaborative. Right now for programmers, the experience is mostly individualistic when you're actually writing code. The times where you're collaborative is in the design phases outside of code or, or any number of things, but in actually composing the program, like you pretty much sit alone. And so it, on a bench with a whole bunch of participants, anybody can move the pieces of paper around to explore like what this program might do. And so, so that's one thing, one aspect. The other aspect is that you can use the physical things in your world and use them as input to your program. So for example, instead of programming the UI for a turntable or a wheel or like a scrubber, you could just construct like a, a disc with some colored dots on it and on a spinny thingy, the word escapes me right now. And because the computer can track the position, you can tie that information of the position to a program that takes that position, such as like a, a movie movie player and connect mm -hmm. it to its like uh, position in, in the movie, right? And so yeah. by, to connect them together, normally for programmers, you would have to write out the code to say, reference this information over here. But in dynamic land, you just put the things next to each other and they'll know that the, the movie player will know that the spinning disc is the thing that, that scrubs the movie. And so right. the reason why I talk about this is it seems reminiscent of the idea of a metaverse where it takes the best parts of the offline with the, the best parts of the online. One of the other revelation, uh, so, so one good part of offline is this like physical presence of others where you collaborate and kind of riff off of each other's ideas in rapid succession. Like you don't really get that with our like purely digital tools when it comes to the experience of programming right now. Yeah. The other thing is that in dynamic land, you leverage the real world as part of your programming construct. There are no lists in dynamic land. In order to make mm -hmm. a list, you just arrange the elements of your stuff on the table in the order that you want them. <laughs> and so that's your list. Okay. And then if you want to like swap two elements, you just swap them. And so in, in this, it's the same thing with like the controls with the spinner or anything else you have. It's like um, in a fully digital world, you have to ha like build all that and build all the physics and the rules for how those things operate so that it makes intuitive sense to people. But in dynamic land, it delegates those sort of things that people naturally have an intuition about 
into the physical world so that mm. it doesn't actually have to implement any of it. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. One thing I haven't thought about is metaverse interfaces, like interfaces to the metaverse where you are physically manipulating something and it causes some change to happen in the state of some you know, virtual system. Right. And so one of the things that Brett Victor laments is our current vision of the future is just glass panels everywhere, whether they're transparent or not. And he's like, well, no, because that's not really how humans intuitively interact with the world, right? There's only like only a few gestures that you have on a glass pane, like you can swipe it mostly. And like most things aren't like that. Like all the objects that I have, like I can hold it in different ways and different grips, right? Like, so what if mm -hmm. there are ways for these objects to know how I'm gripping it and be able to like manifest like an effect digitally and vice versa, right? And so the idea of having a whole room size computer is that people can interact with physical things in a very intuitive way for like exploratory computing rather than computing that we know today. So obviously it's missing a couple things that oh, for the metaverse, like the persistent payments and stuff like that. But I, I think the, the one main thing that struck out with me was kind of this blending of the best parts of the offline and, and online. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one thing that's interesting about this uh, way of working in dynamic land that resonates with me as a tech worker is that there's a physical aspect to our work. I think pre-pandemic, people liked coming into the office and having these, these sort of hallway conversations and being able to whiteboard together or sketch out some architecture diagram. And that is an experience that I think people are still feeling the loss of now working entirely remotely. Yeah. And extending that further, why just diagram on whiteboard and then go to your desk and then type out the code to make that happen in source code? What if you actually just worked in a giant room where you were talking with your coworkers and the physical objects that you manipulated in fact changed the workings of your source code or your cloud service or, or whatever. So you can imagine you're like now an SRE or something who is managing some outage in your company systems. And the way that you do it is you're in a war room and you're moving these things around and that's reconfiguring some load balancer or whatever. And Man, talk and so about works. pressure. <laughs> Right. It's, 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 it's kind of like those movies where the right, right, movies right. Where, you, where you have all these panels and you're, you know, flicking this around and that around and, 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 and it's a very physical sort of uh, act. But, and you know, the hacker changed all the lights to green within five minutes. And like, right. I know that when I'm coding, having somebody looking over my shoulder, I can't get anything done in five minutes. <laughs> right. As a sirens blaring and hopefully right. not all that. But no, I, no, know, but, I, but I, I get what you're saying in that, like, I think when it comes to programming, a lot of it is um, kind of um, 
not ephemeral, but kind of abstract, I think. And so mm -hmm. there are some things that we find really hard to communicate to our team members that aren't looking at the code base, such as, dude, there's technical debt, right? We need to, yeah. like, that sort of thing. And they're just like, whatever, it works. I don't care. It just goes suffering silence, right? Or, yeah. or any, any number of things. And so if that sort of mess were more reified where they could kind of see it because it's, it, it's made physical, at least like digitally visible, then maybe mm -hmm. they can see, okay, I, I, I can see why you think it's messy and hard to work with. Like it, there's more of an empathy there and then a better sense of like the trade-offs that we're making for keeping this sort of thing around. Or maybe we can kind of see that we physically boxed in the mess and everybody's like, okay, like we can deal with this because we can just trash this later on, right? And, and that sort of thing. One of the things I wish was the game Factorio. Like engineering was a little bit more like Factorio. Um, mm. In one sense, it would be a nightmare because you would have conveyor belts everywhere. For those of you that haven't played Factorio, it's a resource game where you land on an alien planet by yourself, but you have all these technologies and a technology tree and you slowly build a factory mining ore to make chips, to make other factories and so on and so forth until you build a space shuttle to go out. And it's really popular game with engineers, like because it's exactly like programming, except <laughs> you're like building conveyor belts and factories. And so in some sense, I really do wonder what the experience would be like if work was more like Factorio. Kind of, I take it that right. that's kind of what, like, what you're describing. If not, it's not mm -hmm. exactly like that, but like, like you're in a room, in a war room, and you can like move stuff around to like change parameters to, to see some change taking effect in your product that's, that's digital. Yeah, I think so. It's a really obvious leap for programmers to make in that the things that we're manipulating are inherently these abstract entities. I think other job functions as well could interact in room-sized computer because if you think about things like business intelligence dashboards and reports and all these things, they're basically trying to give some visual manifestation of things like profit or user growth or engagement or whatever. And you kind of have to take that in visually and then do some action. So you can imagine you have some like growth PM or head of revenue or whatever is watching money come in or money go out or the attrition of, of users and, and tweaking some knobs uh, or, 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 you know, levers or whatever, maybe physically even, that is changing how the system works and then being able to visualize the effects of those actions. Maybe it actually will lead to a different type of decision-making because you kind of get the sensory feedback. Yeah, it has to be something more immediate because there, for things like A-B tests, you have to have to wait for like a week or two or whatever the statistical yeah. significance are. But I think there are others where if you kind of just watch, 
man, it, it would feel a little manipulative. Like if you're watching the funnel of people going to checkout and you're tweaking different parameters of like what the checkout experience is like, you right. may be able to build an intuitive sense of like what actually works and what doesn't. Because right now, a lot of that is really invisible. It's collected in the aggregate. Yeah, I do wonder what sort of like privacy issues uh, will arise. But well, right. then again, I mean, we have tools as web developers that record people's like mouse movements and the keyboard surprise surprise for those of you aren't, that aren't web developers you could effectively watch somebody's session to see what they're doing yeah and you know i can imagine as well maybe somebody is also viewing some real-time data from a store or a restaurant or something like mm -hmm. that and they're tweaking menu prices or operational aspect of how a you know store is run uh, and the, just sending the, out commands into physical space that change the layout of the store yeah. or yeah, change the lighting right yeah. change the lighting change the smell I, I think a lot of retail they like they're very they they what do you call it? Smell is important in the shopper experience as, as they've like right. conducted uh, experiments on this. So yeah, yeah, that, that would be interesting. So, so that you get a sense of being in the same place working together on something and that thing may be a digital product, but it may conceivably affect a digital or a physical world somewhere such as a retail store. Yeah, definitely. We laid out how this could change a variety of different industries. What do we think is the gap? How, how can we get there? I mean, one, one big thing I saw was the concurrency issue. One of the things laid out by Matthew Ball and his manifesto was that not only does it have to have a persistent state, and that it's like an immersive 3D experience with an economy, but it, people experience it synchronously. Like that seems to be a really tough problem to have people experience the same thing in near time, if not real near time. Because right now, a lot of the games have they, they kind of hack around this problem of having a lot of people online at the same time. Like Zoom calls, I don't know what's their limit for Zoom calls, like 150 or something like that, maybe. Is it really that high? I thought it was lower than that. I don't know. I Maybe it's lower. Oh, I'm just going off like what web RTC or something like that might, or oh, what is yeah, would might be able to handle for yeah. I, I don't. Yeah, know. but but at any, any rate, I think yeah, I, I, is I know not it's, that high. Yeah, it's 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 not compared to the because compared to what the web handles and the web was architected in a very specific way to give the illusion that everybody is kind of on at the same time, but the server doesn't really have to handle a real-time stream of actions from from each player yeah definitely and we're we're feeling the kind of pain of what you're describing 
in this you know pandemic time where despite all this nice technology that we have you know every zoom call including this one it starts with like hey can you hear me oh no oh, there's <laughs> yeah, yeah, a problem and yeah. and so that really kind of breaks this like seamless experience and it becomes grading in a way that you wouldn't want to work every day for the rest of your life and so i think um yeah i think uh, a lot of the scaling the, the network has to scale to support these concurrent experiences in a way that doesn't take you out of the moment i guess yeah yeah and then i think the other thing is creation tools are not yet good enough i want to say we don't have the equivalent of twitter or snapchat for 3d stuff i think maybe i just haven't looked hard enough yet because i know there's a whole bunch of like mobile ar companies that you know want to do uh sampling of say furniture so that you can get them online i don't know how well they work but in order to craft entire 3D experiences, I think the authoring tools for 3D are difficult to design. And I, I get the sense that they're not yet quite good enough so that everybody is a creator in the same way that everybody is a creator with like TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I'd add is the gap in the connectivity of a lot of physical objects right now. We're getting there in the sense of these smart devices, but not every object in your house is is wired up. And it's it's kind of cost prohibitive. And in fact, there are network scaling challenges to having a ton of Wi-Fi enabled devices in your house. Yeah. Even having you know a few smart bulbs, you kind of push the limit of your Wi-Fi. Imagine if everything in your house was able to be manipulated from the virtual world. I think Wi-Fi would need to get a lot better. But two, I think that the the technology would have to get cheap enough that you could throw a 5G chip into literally anything in your house and have that be able to somehow be represented or manipulated by some virtual process. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, it's, it's hard to imagine how far it could go because it, very quickly you go beyond practical limitations for anybody that knows anything, I guess. Like the, about like, you know, limitations of, of technology. Like I'm on, honestly surprised any of this stuff works. <laughs> but right. the, uh, yeah, I mean, even simple things like a mug that, measures its temperature and then having the surface of the mug display a different color right and so mm -hmm. and not just that but being able to respond to queries for what is the temperature in the mug so that i don't know you can tie it to i don't know uh, your oven i don't know microwave oven or something like yeah. that, or the water heater uh, a made up problem right but the 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 sense that a lot of things, physical things, could be imbued with magic. Because I think we're, we're used mm -hmm. to digital objects having that uh, sense of magic because we, we know that 
we can make it do most anything and we can connect it to a lot of different things subject to the constraints of like whoever built it for us but when it comes to physical things it's very limited and so on one hand it may be a good thing because the user interface is limited so it's like okay i get how this thing works right but yeah. if if my cup was like interconnected and it to do things i mean it may, might make for a very complicated and stressful living situation i mean i have hue lights and i thought it would be great if i had it turn blue if it was going to rain but i forgot that I did that setting. And so to me, it seemed like the lights would just randomly turn blue. And I had no idea why, because I had lost the connection between the two and there was like no single place to, to look for it. Yeah. But 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 that's the, the imbuing of magic into everyday physical things is a very alluring prospect for people because we've been telling those kind of stories for a very long time. Yeah, definitely. I think there's sort of a mindset shift from consumers as well that, that needs to happen. One story that I heard is that in Texas or something where people had smart thermostats, they opted into a program by their power company that said that their power company could at a mass scale, oh. control the temperature inside their home in order to yeah. shed load from uh, you know right. peak times, right. and then they actually did that, and then people got mad. They were like, "The power company is changing my thermostat and and and, and reaching into my house, and and I, my privacy is being violated, and et cetera, et cetera." We were talking about a company being able to tweak in real time the smell of a place or the color of a place. Maybe not your house, but but still, I think people need to, you know, get used to this idea that the the world around them is going to change in these ways that is connected to something that isn't immediately apparent to them. Yeah, and that that might be a very jarring also. And so, we, I guess the other thing that's missing might be like the social and behavioral norms for this stuff because i guess if if you were to wear ar glasses with like snapchat's filter on like is it like what well, you could conceivably put virtual makeup on your wife or girlfriend that is more like i mean like it's it's a real possibility right like so you're just mm -hmm. like i don't like the way that she did her makeup today i'll put something else on in the same way that like people with their own browsers like they change their own font or whatever or like they force the website to go into dark mode on their own browser right but and so effectively you could conceivably do something like that with the metaverse right and so what's what's kind of like the social norm for that is it okay that you do it but she doesn't know or she knows and you have to like work out the consent for that, that, that sort of thing, right? Or yeah. even in in the show Black Mirror where it, when you block somebody, they just look like static. And so you have no mm -hmm. idea what they're saying. You can't hear them, you can't see them at all. You know, that, that would have like uh, weird, like societal implications, right? And then yeah. I, I guess the, the flip side of like putting makeup on other people maybe that you 
change the expression of the people looking at like you might say something and then you just put everybody's face to to laugh so that yeah. you get over your own social like anxiety when you're giving a presentation or something right, right something like that and so like it's it's a weird sense that the metaverse allows people to opt into realities that of their own choosing and so you can imagine people kind of putting that slider from minimal kind of like minimal plastic surgery to like full-on like I want to see unicorns and rainbows on my lawn every morning sort of thing right and so yeah. I, I don't know what the what the right cultural norms for that would be and those things probably have to get in place because like once we get AR glasses, you could conceivably just put Snapchat on it and everybody looks like they have puppy dog ears for fun or like everybody right. just looks like the most attractive version of themselves, right? Right, yeah. I, I think there, there are reasons to believe that we will sort of weather this change. I think of things like social media and at the you know at the beginning there were no rules baked in and everybody did like weird faux pas like you know doing facebook pokes uh, a little too much and, and uh, oversharing yeah and oversharing. Like, this is what i ate <laughs> yeah exactly and i think over time people have figured out i think it's the nature of human beings to figure out this delicate dance of how to convey non-verbally your intent, you know, when to like something versus when to comment something versus when to share. And, uh, and, and I think people will figure out as we get more and more tools, you know, what's appropriate, what's not, what does it signal when you do one thing versus another thing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm ho hoping that, well, last episode we talked about or not last episode, two episodes ago, we were talking about how to bring civil discourse back. And maybe with something like the vet metaverse where presence is so real that in socializing, it'll, it'll kind of bring back those same instincts to, to people when they're talking about stuff. So that I, I, I guess it's much easier to be mean. <laughs> when yeah. you're just typing words if, if you can't see how somebody is reacting so and they're not in your face or in, uh, present yeah yeah all right we we covered a lot of ground <laughs> <laughs> actually this is i thought this was like a gigantic thing there's a lot of other specific things to talk about and i guess if people are interested we can cover some of the other verticals or pillars within the the metaverse because it's a gigantic topic but yeah yeah, yeah. It, we did cover yeah. the ground well no yeah i was gonna say this is this we could go arbitrarily deep i think we have a lot of thoughts on this and, and we can sort of pontificate endlessly and i wouldn't mind if we did a, a whole series on this and became as, as famous as matthew ball maybe <laughs> But for having completely <laughs> wrong predictions about the future, I, I guess that's lonely. But yeah, sure, sure, sure. Let, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think we scratched the surface and, and I think we tried to provide uh, a different take than what's the consensus that's been going around about what the metaverse is and, and what it means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
for one, we did not ro mention Roblox or Minecraft at all, <laughs> but but that definitely or or Fortnite for that matter. But but I think that there's definitely room for that uh, as well. We'll we'll get to that some other time. So yep. uh, we're we're glad to have you us here. If you like what you hear, subscribe, smash that like button. Is, is that what the YouTubers say nowadays? I, I sure, why not? Yeah, yeah, why not? And click right, the so, bell icon. That's right, another that's thing they say, I think. Yes. So we, we got to get with it. So, so this is Will. And this is Shri. I'm signing off, and uh, see you next week. Cool. Bye. All right. Take care.